Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So paradox. A paradox is it's a statement or it's a proposition that seems contradictory. It seems like it won't work or it seems absurd. But in reality, it leads to truth. And when you look at the entire narrative through the, the crucifixion of Jesus, what you find is it's a paradox after a paradox after a paradox. And what we're going to do is look at these, some of these paradoxes as we move towards Easter. And really, this whole, the whole idea of Christianity strikes me as a paradox. This whole idea that God would become a man, that the, the king of kings would come not to be served, but to serve. You see, that seems absurd. That he would be born of a virgin in a podunk town, in a barn. It's, it's very paradoxical. That the God of the universe somehow would clothe himself in humanity and come in the form of, hu of humility. Like, it's just... But is it... Does it take a real leap of faith to believe this? Is it, is it too unbelievable, too different, too absurd to, to be able to wrap our minds around? Or isn't it more plausible than all the other ways that man has concocted to get to God? Here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about how clearly it's got to be more believable that God has come to us than that we would somehow get to Him. Right? I mean, have you met other humans? So the minute you interacted with some religious system that was teaching that somehow we would elevate ourselves to God... If you've met anyone else, you realize that is absurd. Now that is absurd. I mean, if you really stop and think logically, every other world religion teaches the, the, the striving and the cleaning up and the perfecting of self to achieve a state where we might reach God. But here's my point. My point is that any God that we could reach on our own wouldn't be worth reaching for. It wouldn't even be worth it. Doesn't it make more sense that God would write himself into our story than that we would somehow write God into ours? Yes, because it couldn't go the other way. Now, it is remarkable that he's chosen to do what he's chosen to do. But if it's going to happen, it has to be him initiating and accomplishing because clearly we're incapable of doing that. And that's what makes the gospel such good news. Is that Jesus comes on a mission from the Father. And he came for us in our place to our world to rescue us. That's a paradox. 
And here we are. Created in the image of God. But He comes to image us. And of course, our image of Him is distorted and shattered and bent and broken by sin and corruption. But His image of us, His picture of humanity that He portrays as fully human is perfect. And so if you have your listening guides, here's where we want to begin. We want to begin what it says at the bottom of your sheet there. It's only because He became like us that we can become like Him. It's the only way. It's the only way it could have been. Jesus becoming like us so that we can be who we were created to be. So that we can revert back. So that we can move back to what was originally intended. Here's how the Bible puts it. Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See? Man didn't reach God. He reached us. He came to heal your body and to know what your pain feels like. He did that. He came to rescue our hearts and to know the weight of our sorrow. He came to redeem our mind and to feel the weight and the pull of temptation. He came fully human, experiencing all that we experienced so that he could fully save us. As our substitute. Which proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is for us. Because of what he's done. And so when we think about the cross and we think about the work that Jesus did. What I want us to see this morning and over the next couple of weeks. Is how I believe every detail. We won't have time because it would take a year. But we're going to go through some of these details. But I believe that every detail of the cross of Christ. Is not only a paradox. But in the paradox what we'll find when we look closely. Is the beauty of God's plan. And it's not just for eternity. But it's for today. So look in Mark 14. I want to show you. We're going to begin in verse 32. So we're going to parachute in, but then we'll get some context. Mark 14, verse 32. Jesus and his disciples, they came to a place which is named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little further, and he fell on the ground and prayed that if 
it were possible the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not that I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke these same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now, let's just back up from this moment and, and let's walk together to figure out how did we get here? How did the redemptive process get to this moment in this garden in these circumstances? See, all of this began when there was nothing and then God just spoke galaxies into existence. At his command and through his words, everything that is today was created through him. The oceans, the mountains, everything that we know and understand from the desert to the forest, to the blue whale, to the tadpole that lives in the pond behind your house, all of it. Every single thing God created. And think about his creation. Think about the imagination and the power that were at work in this creation. That God, in creation, he makes volcanoes and the rhinoceros. But then he also makes strawberries and dandelions. I mean, just think about that. All of these things he, he creatively weaves into existence. Down to the tiniest detail. And so this, this creation that he makes, it's like a giant mirror reflecting the glory and majesty of the God who created it. This is why when we see a natural beauty that just takes our breath away, we're immediately drawn to the God who made it. And then this God who does all of this, he stoops down and gets his hands dirty. And he takes dust from the ground. And he breathes life into Adam. And where does he place Adam? In a garden. He puts him in a garden. And he says to him, in this garden, he says, Adam, now you, you have dominion over all of this. You, you live and breathe and enjoy this garden. You, you take hold of it. You take care of it. You steward it well. And you do it all for, for my glory and for your joy. It was the perfect scenario. And so this is what I want you to see about the story of creation. That when we, when we listen to this story, what, what God's telling us is He's saying, You are different. 
You're unlike any of these other things that have been created. They're all, they're all representative of my glory and my majesty and my power and my creativity and how amazing I am. But this one thing, Adam and Eve, you're, you're different. You, you, you function in a completely unique way. Unlike anything else in creation. Now, everything that God creates declares the glory of God. But nothing declares the glory of God like man does. Nothing. See, we not only declare like the rocks and the trees and the clouds and the planets and everything else. We not only declare like they do, but here's the difference. We display the character of God. You see, we, we alone have that capacity. We alone can love like God loves. We alone have access to the personality of God. See, because unlike anything else in creation, we image God. Now, that's important to understand. Because if you think about this, you, you think about what happened in that garden. In that garden, initially, Adam instinctively living in the presence of God. He begins to, to, to love like God loves, to, to give like God gives. He, he, he is at total peace with who he is and with everything that's around him he works like God works God made Adam an under shepherd if you think about it in the garden of Eden Adam was a was a ruler and a king wasn't he nothing else was just Adam he was free he, Adam and Eve had total freedom and yet they had authority. And in this freedom and authority, as they existed, what they did was for the glory of God. But then chapter 3 comes, right? Then the serpent shows up. Then comes sin. And then comes brokenness. Genesis 3. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, this fruit, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So then what? Believing this lie? They believe, they put faith in the serpent and what the serpent says. They feel, notice, it's desirable to make one wise. They feel entitled to take the fruit. They believe that they could do whatever they want to do. That they should be able to do that. That it's right to be able to do that. That they should be like God. What's shocking about a story that we've heard thousands of times, most of us, is the fact that 
Although Satan is hiding some things from Adam and Eve, here's what Satan's not hiding. He's not hiding the fact that if you eat of the fruit, you'll be like God. Because he knows that's the the hook. Why didn't Adam and Eve think, well, I don't want to be like God. Because I'm not God and I shouldn't be like God. And I should trust that God made me as much like him as he desired. Why would I ever, why would I ever do this? Well, here's my question. Has anything changed? I mean, don't we believe the same lie today? Just like Adam and Eve? Aren't we always? Just be honest. How many of us in here this morning, our lives are defined by we're constantly looking around the next corner for what's going to make us happy? Now, how can a saved person say that? But we do. Our lives declare it. Think about how in the garden, God was present with Adam and Eve. They had unhindered access to him and unbridled intimacy with him. And it wasn't enough. They weren't satisfied. It was somehow insufficient. Somehow, they were not satisfied. They wanted more. They wanted more than than God. Are we that way? Let me give you one simple illustration I want you to think with me for a moment about prayer I want you to think about the way that we pray today isn't it true that most people who say that prayer works today really mean that God did what they wanted Him to do. That's the only context today that you ever hear anybody praising God for hearing prayer. is because He did what we want Him to do. As if prayer was some button to be pushed that... that would release the the thing that we wanted out of the vending machine. That we just go up and push the button, and if God hears our prayer, then we get that thing. And if we don't get that thing, then prayer must not work. Well, what if it works very differently than we'd like it to work? See, It still works when we can't trace any direct result from our prayer. 
It still works when the opposite of what we prayed for happens. It still works in the moments when we feel very distant from God. It still works when we bang on the door of heaven for years and are not sure that anything is going on up there at all. It still works. You see, my question is, is that when I hear, read, listen to, it doesn't matter where you look in Christianity today, whenever prayer comes up, here's what I always ask myself. What about the people who prayed and didn't get the job? What about the people who prayed and ended up with cancer? What about the people who prayed and their child was still born without a heartbeat? What about the people who prayed and then ended up in a car crash and left them permanently disabled? What about them? Does prayer not work for them? Does prayer somehow work for some people and not work for other people? Is that what prayer is? How did we get so twisted? Prayer does not work because I got what I wanted and someone else didn't. No, listen. Prayer is not a it's not a button to be pushed. It's a relationship to be pursued. It's a relationship to be pursued. My favorite quote about prayer is one by Tim Keller, and here's what he says. He says, when you pray, God will always give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. So what does the way that we pray reveal about us? That's just one illustration. If we had three hours, I could just go through... I could just go through one after another, after another, after another. It reveals our, our desire for more, but not more of God, but more of what we want. More of our way. More of, we really want the same thing Adam and Eve wanted. We do. We do. And we feel entitled to get it. And as long as our hearts feel entitled, then here's what happens. Our personal growth and our relationship with God and with others is going to cease. Because we begin to interact with God in an unbiblical way. We begin to interact with a God who's not the God of the Bible. Therefore, it can never yield what we are aspiring for it to yield. We may as well be praying to an idol. We may as well be. Because an idol has as much in common with the biblical God as most of the way people pray today to a God who is completely different than anything we 
seem to want to know in this. See, this entitlement, it undermines intimacy. Do you know what undermines intimacy in your personal relationships? Is when you begin to interact with your spouse or with your kids or, or in a close relationship, if you begin to interact with somebody as if there's something that they're not, it, the intimacy is going to begin to disappear. Well, what do you think happens when we interact with God that way? And then what happens? What is the result when we don't get what we want? We get angry with God because He hasn't given us what we want. We get angry with people because they haven't given us what we want because we're entitled. And here we are this morning in Christ, new covenant believers. And what do we have? Unhindered access to Him and unbridled intimacy with Him. If we so desire, we have it. Christ made that possible. But somehow, just like Adam and Eve, we're convinced that it's insufficient. And so our prayer lives prove that we worship God's stuff, not God. See, Adam was created in a garden. Adam was broken in a garden. And then a second Adam was arrested in a garden and the healing began. Look, at, look back at Mark 14. Look at verse 42. So now here's what happens. Jesus says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him. And he said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. Now, let's go back to this garden at Gethsemane. Let's imagine everything that's going on in this scene. Not just what the Bible is describing to us in Mark 14, but what the whole Bible has told us so that we, we know a lot of things about this other than just what's related here. Think about the context. Think about, think about what is around Jesus in this moment. Yes, there's these weary disciples who are tired, who have fallen asleep multiple times. It's late. There's Judas, the betrayer. He's there. There's a multitude with swords and clubs. They're there. But what else is there? The trees are there. The leaves are there. The blades of grass are there. The wildflowers are there. Every single thing that Jesus could see when he looked around. Every single thing. He made it. 
He owns it. It's all his. He has authority over it. Every little detail in that garden. Colossians says that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, while visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things consist. Now here's what I thought about. Not only did he create them, not only were they made for him, but he holds them together. They, they consist because of him, because of his ongoing work, not his once upon a time work, but his ongoing presence and authority holds all these things together according to the Bible. So I started thinking about these men who came with their clubs and their swords. And that Jesus, according to Psalm 139, he knit them together in their mother's womb, all those men. That Jesus is the one that connected the ligaments and the muscles to the bone that enables them to grip those clubs the way that they do. They're squeezing on to the handle of those swords because God made them and gave them the ability to do that. You ever think about this? And then what about what they're holding? The clubs that they're holding, God created those. He grew those trees. He made those. And He's holding it together. Those swords, He's the one that made all the materials that enable them to make the sword. And He's holding it together. And if He were to turn loose for just one instant, every club would turn into sawdust and every sword would be metal shavings. He's holding it together. They're there to kill him. He's surrounded by all of these things and all of them he has utter and complete authority over. He has every right as creator God. Everything is subject to to him. Everything. Demons are subject to him. Disease is subject to him. The wind and the wave. It doesn't matter. It's all subject to him. He is in complete authority. And yet. In this moment. There's no hint. Not even a trace. Of entitlement. So often we live with a sense of entitlement. We believe that we deserve better. We refuse to sacrifice or to do hard things because of our rights. Because we don't have to. Because we don't want to. Because we don't like to. And so what's happened is our lives have become, in so many ways, fueled 
fueled, our motivation is the pursuit of what we believe that we're due. That's entitlement. And instead of finding our identity and our value and our worth to the Creator as being children of God, made in the image of God, so oftentimes we want His stuff. We live our lives in pursuit, not of God, but of his stuff. Nothing really has changed. And so where do we end up? We end up the same place Adam and Eve did. Voluntary slavery. We've willfully, voluntarily placed ourselves in bondage. See, when we were free, we thought there was more, and more didn't bring more freedom. No, it didn't. If you can go to that slide uh, 21, that would help me. Entitlement is for us a strange combination of thinking we're owed something and being enslaved to the need of that something. Always thinking there's, there's more. God, I want this. God, will you do this? God, can you help me with this? And the problem's not in the asking. The problem's in the fact that when was the last time that you just wanted God? You didn't want anything from Him. Just Him. But Tony, I have to have it. I can't live without it. I can't bear it. I mean, I've heard it all. I've heard it all. Because I've entered into all the painful stories. And even in the midst of pain. So many times. We lose sight of who God is. And we're just consumed with this circumstance. The single person who can't live without someone to love them. The married person who can't live without security. To protect them.
the modern Christian who prays for comfort. For comfort. For promotion. We want the freedom to do whatever we want. Whenever we want. And the problem is we ignore the very freedom that we need. The freedom that we have. The greatest freedom you could ever imagine. Access to God. But really what we're saying is we want to be like Him. And so we've become slaves. And you know who our slave master is? Entitlement. There's Jesus. No entitlement. He has every right, all authority. And he lets them arrest him. He doesn't resist. He didn't crush the officials with his pinky finger. He could have, but he didn't. You know, if he could speak all of them into existence, he could speak all of them out. He could have just said a word and obliterated every human in his presence. But he didn't do any of that. No, the one that holds all things together, you know what he did? He kept holding. He stayed faithful. He chose against entitlement. John chapter 10, verse 18, No one, Jesus said, takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. You know why? Slide 25. Because we chose voluntary slavery, Jesus volunteers to be enslaved in our place. You see, we chose the problem. And then Jesus chooses to be the solution. But in being the solution, he enters into the problem. Don't you see the paradox of all of this? See, the, the, the message of the gospel is that here we are. We're arrested by our, our lies and our deceit and our entitlement and our selfishness and our frailty and our, and our desire for ourselves. And Jesus comes and lays down all of his rights. Empties himself. And becomes a servant. He does the opposite. He's the one who's owed honor in the situation, but yet he's the one who's dishonored. He's the one who deserves all the glory and praise. But here he is, humbling himself and becoming obedient even to the point of death. And so here we are this morning. We're heirs of God with Christ, the Bible says. Listen. 
I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm praying about this and putting this together. And I'm thinking about this. And I'm thinking, I don't even know how God doesn't kill me now. Now. Then you never have to hear it. I'm an heir of God in Christ. My inheritance is sealed and in heaven. What am I asking God for? What am I dissatisfied with? What is not enough? What's not good enough? What do I need? What is, what is the problem? I'm entitled. We're entitled. We want our way more than we want God. Listen, brothers and sisters, I just want you to understand something. In Christ, this morning, we have everything. Do you understand that? We have everything. Our lives should be consumed with worshiping and praising God and just consumed with gratitude towards Him for all that He's done. We're in this place this morning and we know the freedom that we know. Because the one who didn't have to, the one who shouldn't have, the one who had every right not to, chose chains to make us free. He handed himself over. He has authority over everything. And he did nothing. We have authority over nothing. And we want everything. Humanity started in a garden. It started there. And then it was broken in the garden. And then it was healed in a garden. And it's a great paradox in that garden. It seems so absurd that the one with all the power and all the authority, with all the might and all the rule and every right, would be led away like a captive, like someone weak. Jesus was not entitled so that we could be delivered from our entitlement. It started in the Garden of Eden. And Satan is still playing the same trick on us today. How many of you came in here this morning? 
just utterly frustrated, dissatisfied. And what's the source of the frustration and the dissatisfaction? Do you know Christ? Are you an heir of God this morning? What is it that you are entitled to beyond what you've already been given? Has he not proven his willingness to give all things? When he doesn't answer the way we want him to answer, does that mean he doesn't hear or that he doesn't care? You see, we love to talk about and think about and sing about how much he loves us and how good he is and all these truths about him. But when it comes down to it, until... We don't get what we want. Then all the things that we once said were true begin to fade away. I'll leave you with this. If there's anything in this world that proves to me how much God loves us, it's that He suffers us. Let's stand and bow our head.